Go back with me, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 11, and let's start there. And we're going to um, move around a bit tonight, so um, I think we're going to be able to cover three whole verses tonight. And um, uh, But I want to start with verse 11, and I hope that you understand at least the topic that's in front of the apostle. He's talking about um, the inclusion of the Jews and then uh, the regrafting in, we'll use that terminology later, but of, of Israel. It's talking about Jews and Gentiles and how the, uh, the, the Jews stumbled for a while, but that's temporary and they're going to uh, be brought back in later. But anyway, that's, that's the subject of this little section and goes all the way uh, really to about um, verse 27. But let me read you beginning at verse 11. I'm going to read you through verse 15. And here we go. So I ask, did they, that is Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, guys, I hope you see the issue. Paul is dealing with uh, the, the relationship of Jews and Gentiles and, and their, their, their position in the whole kingdom of God. And so um, I, I, I hope that you'll find this interesting. Um, this is the kind of stuff that I love to, to see, but maybe I'm, I'm uh, not... not Maybe I'm a minority, but keep your finger in Romans chapter 11. I want you to go over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, because what Paul is dealing with is something that Jesus stated was going to happen. And if you've never seen that uh, or perhaps understood some of these parables, I I think you can understand them now in, in knowing that God has this thing that he's doing with Gentiles and Jews. All right. We're not going to read Matthew 21. We'll read some of it. But you'll notice that, uh, that Matthew 21 begins, this is the last week of Jesus' life, and it begins with the triumphal entry. Do you see that? Verses 1 through um, uh, 11 has to do with the triumphal entry. And then, then he cleanses the temple in that, oh, big crisis where he enters into the temple and there's all this money changing going on. And, I mean, he overturns tables and, and makes a mess of things. And... And, um, uh, I mean, everybody is a buzz, um, and everybody is wondering who this guy is. <coughs> Pardon me. And then the next story has to do with a parable. It's this curse of the fig tree. I want you to take a look at that. Um, notice it starts in the morning or in the next morning. That is, the morning right after he cleansed the temple. Now, and you can imagine... This is Passover week, and, and Israel is a buzz. There's lots of people there, and, and this prophet from Nazareth, who people have been talking about for some time already, has entered into the temple and, and, and precipitated a, almost a, a fist fight uh, within the, the, the confines of, of the temple. So the next morning, he gets up and he heads back into Jerusalem, and the first thing that he does is that he curses a fig tree. You see that in verse uh, verse 18. He became hungry. He sees a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it and found nothing on it but no leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree with it at once. Now, guys, 
um, the image of a fig tree or the image particularly of a vineyard uh, was often used in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 5. You can check that out if you like later, but was often used to represent Israel, that God went and planted this vineyard and did all these great things for it, et cetera, et cetera. And that image from the Old Testament is brought into the New quite frequently. And you see it coming into the, the New Testament here. Now notice, um, this image of the fig tree is an image of Israel. And Israel is judged because of its barrenness. Notice, and he said, made no fruit. He found (coughs) this tree by the wayside and there was nothing on it. There was no fruit. And as a result, he curses that fig tree and it withers from the the roots up. Then we go over, there's this section where uh, his authority is challenged. And then we come to this parable of the two sons, which is an interesting parable about two sons and the father comes to him and says, um, okay, go do, go work in the fields. And one of them says, okay, I will, and then doesn't. The other one says, no, I won't, and th- won't, and then does. So the, the point of that little parable is that w- what's important, what matters, is not what you say, but what you do. And then we come, folks, to the parable of the tenants. W- what I'm trying to say to you is, guys, that the theme of Matthew 21 is one theme. And, and, and let me kind of crown it for you in this, this parable of uh, uh, beginning of verse 33. You know this parable. I mean, you've heard this before. There's this guy. He plants this vineyard. There's Israel again. Um, he put a fence around it, built a tower, leased it to some tenants. Uh, Israel is nothing but a tenant farmer. Uh, Israel doesn't own the territory. Israel is working the territory that's owned by the, by the owner. But look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent, that is the owner, sends his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Now remember, just prior to that, over in this, this parable of the fig tree, Jesus comes to a tree and what's he looking for? Fruit. And because there's no fruit there, he says, well, <laughs> You're done for. You'll never have fruit again. That's it for you, with, for, with you. And, and the, the tree withers. Uh, so over to this parable, he's looking for fruit. The tenants took one of the servants. I mean, they, uh, the, the, the owner sends all these representatives, some servants, and they beat one, and they stone one, and they kill one. And so finally the, the owner says, well, you know what I ought to do is I ought to send my son. Um, uh, see, and threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what shall he do to the, those tenants? They said to him, uh, he shall put those wretches to a miserable death, let out the vineyard to other tenants, etc., etc." All right, now here, here's the point, guys. Look at verse 43. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, and this is in response to this telling of a parable. He's told this parable about uh, uh, some tenant farmers. He expected, the owner expected some fruit. He didn't get the fruit. And as a result of his not getting the fruit, he says in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Do you see what he's doing? He is saying, Israel, you're going to be set aside and Gentiles are going to be brought in, which is the very thing that Paul is discussing in Romans 11. 
And the issue is fruit. Israel did not bear the fruit that was expected of her. And as a result, she was set aside. And there, he, he, in the, the language of verse 43, uh, it's taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, all of that, guys, is nothing more than what Paul is teaching you in Romans chapter 11. He is talking to you about this event where Israel was set aside and, and Gentiles, and the gospel went to Gentiles. That's what this is. And so he's trying to clarify for you uh, this setting aside. Um, uh, let me ask, uh, is that going to be permanent? And then, of course, he says, no. And, 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 and in fact, not only is it not going to be permanent, but if the original setting aside meant blessing for you Gentiles, for us Gentiles, boy, it's really going to be better for Gentiles when there is this full inclusion. That's what he's talking about. And then he comes to verse 13. And then he, um, by the way, he's writing this letter to Rome. As you know, Rome is a church that is uh, made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so he tells us, the first thing that he tells us is that he's addressing, in this short portion, he is specifically addressing Gentiles. Um, now he's writing to an audience that has both, but he's this portion, he's speaking directly to Gentiles. And what he's doing here in these three verses is explaining to his Gentile or to the Gentiles in the audience why it is that he's giving so much attention to this Israel issue, this Jew issue, and what that Jew issue or Israel issue might mean to them. That's what he's doing. Um, he makes this comment in verse 14. Um, uh, oh, no, it's in verse 13, that I magnify my ministry in order somehow. And, and what he, I, let me, let me paraphrase, and I think this is to, to, to captivate what he, what he's trying to say is that I am giving myself wholeheartedly to this ministry of Gentiles. Um, but that does not mean that I have forgotten about the Jews that are out there too. Um, what he is trying to describe to Gentiles is that the Gentiles would see great benefit themselves when, in fact, Israel is brought back in. This apostle to the Gentiles has not forgotten Jews. I, I, I'm, I'm reading this in there. Maybe his motive is that he wants to make sure that Gentiles don't treat Jews the way Jews once treated Gentiles. He's trying to tell them that Jews do still have a place, so don't treat them badly like you were treated by them. You know, they, they treated you like dogs. But don't you do that same thing because God still has a purpose. There's, there's still a role for them to play in this unfolding redemptive purpose. Uh, the fact that he is the apostle of the Gentiles must never be interpreted to mean that he has lost interest in Israel. He has not. Um, and then in verse 15, which is really a virtual repetition of verse 12, except for that last clause, and that's what we're going to take a look at, that last clause. But verse 15 
is, is, is almost a repetition of verse 12. Let's read verse 12, and we're going to read these two side by side. Now, if their trespass, that is, Israel's trespass, means riches for the Gentile world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That is, this future um, re-inclusion or re-grafting or re-acceptance of Israel is going to make for great riches for Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 12, and that's what he says in verse 15. And he calls it, um, he, he says, it's, what will their accepted mean but life from the dead? There's a lot of discussion about that little um, life from the dead uh, phrase. Um, now, let, let me try to comment on that and say one other thing, and I'm, I'm done for the night. Um, the gist of Paul's argument is this, or at least there is certainly a hint in it, that when the time of Israel's acceptance, that big event that's going to happen someday off in the future, when that occurs, it will occur at a time when the Gentile church is in a very ill condition such that her new condition, in conjunction with the Israel being grafted back in, will appear like they have risen from the dead. Do you see that? That is, I mean, I'll, I'll try to say it again in different words, but that when Israel comes back in, she will do so at a time where the effect will be a revival for the Gentile church. That the, that the Gentile church will be at that time generally sick such that when Israel is brought back in, it will appear like the Gentile church or the church has now risen from the dead. Um, he's describing a time of revival that will make the then condition of the Gentile church appear to be dull compared to what occurs once Israel is brought in. And all of that's going to take place prior to the return of Jesus Christ. There's going to come a time, he says, that the bulk of the nation of Israel, as a nation, is going to be brought back in and added to the church that will occur at a time when the Gentile church is relatively ill and this new inclusion will make it seem like the church has risen from the dead. That's what's in those three verses. Now, I want to show you a couple other things and we'll quit. But let me, let me say this, guys. Um, first of all, the, the whole idea that this book contains prophecy tells you something about the nature of the book. The, the fact that it is willing, it is willing and, and able to predict future events, is, is, um, it, it, it certainly makes a claim about the nature of this book. If it can do that, 
then you've got something really divine in your hands and on your laps. That's the first thing. But think about it for a minute. (laughs) That all, no, 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 let me put it this way. That the bulk of Israel is going to be quickened, awakened, and added, brought back into the church. What do you think about that? Does that not seem a bit uh, unlikely? Does that not seem a bit... uh, I mean, knowing presently the great hatred, uh, maybe that's a little bit... Knowing the great offense that Israel has with the gospel, that she as a nation in large measure is going to be brought back in to a posture and position of membership in the church? You know, guys, um, all of us know, maybe not all of you, but I I think probably all of you know, I, I hope you do, the exhilaration of seeing somebody that you thought was a hopeless case come to Christ. You know, uh, one of the privileges of my job is that I get to talk to people like that on a fairly frequent basis. Uh, certainly not every day, but a fairly frequent. I, I mean, just uh, three weeks ago, I had a breakfast with a young man. That I, I wish you could hear this. I wish you could. This is a young man who um, who has taken so many drugs and having so many panic attacks um, that he thought he that life was over for him. It was just he was a dead man, and this is a kid who's twenty, um, and and comes to know Christ, and and I, I mentioned him in a sermon about three weeks ago, but it, it it's just remarkable. I mean, you've seen that, you've seen these these instances where you thought this these cases were hopeless, and God does this thing, and 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 turns this life around, and it is exhilarating. To watch and to see and to hear about and to and to know and to and to taste, isn't it? Well, what do you think it's going to be like when a whole na- that happens to a whole nation? It's going to be like resurrection from the dead. It's going to be so exhilarating that the church, as as alive as she might be at that moment. This is going to make her, that condition, pale into illness compared to what he's going to pull off by bringing the nation of Israel in. Um, but, wow. I mean, we don't doubt uh, that God does that with individuals. He did it for some of us who were pretty reckless, hopeless cases. But a whole nation he's going to do that for? And ladies and gentlemen, what he did, what he does in an individual life, in an individual heart, is what he's going to do in a nation. And that same divine work of exchanging a heart of stone for a heart of flesh, he's going to do for the bulk of a nation. Um, and that, guys, the, the miracle required to do that in one person is the same miracle that he's going to use over a whole nation. And it is going to come, it, it appears, I think that's what's hinted in the text, 
it appear, it's going to occur when a t- at a time when the church is relatively ill. And this new inclusion is going to make her seem like resurrection has occurred in her midst. Now, um, that's what I think is being said in those three verses. Now I want to show you something where I think it illustrates the whole thing taking place. So, go with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. Now, I hope you understand what I said, at least explaining what Paul has done there, or said there. Now I want to show you something that I, I think will help you understand it better. At least I hope it will. Um, guys, I've done this before. Not, not this, but I mean, I, I, you understand that the Old Testament in particular, but the New Testament too, but the Old Testament in particular, contains a, a, a healthy number of types. Remember that? Um, you know, there's, there's a whole school of, um, of typology. You, we, we've mentioned this before, that for instance, Joseph, you remember the son whose father loved him and gave him the coat of many colors and, and his brothers rejected him and, and killed him, they thought. But he resurrects from the dead and shows up in Egypt. And then after a whole lot of series of uglinesses, he arises to the right hand of the authority. And when the famine occurs and the people come down there to get food, Pharaoh says to them, go to Joseph. Oh, you're starving, are you? Uh, you haven't got any food. Then go to Joseph. Uh, the point is, Joseph is a type of Christ. I, I've said that before, and I hope that you can see that. That is, what, you're, what you get is a, is a story that has historical value to it. Yes, this, I mean, it's not a fairy tale. It doesn't start off once upon a time. No, it's a story. It really happened. It's a historical event. Joseph is a human being. But what happens to him is a type. It's an illustration. It's a subtle, um, nuanced um, uh, prefigurement of something that will happen later. When people are told, oh, you're spiritually starving, are you? Then go to Jesus. Because all the resources you need, he's got them. That's typology. And the Old Testament is full of it. The temple. Is a type is a piece of typology. Uh, buildings are pieces of typologies. Animals are pieces of typology. They're types. For instance, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Everybody know the scapegoat and the and the um, uh, all of Israel's sins are um, are uh, symbolically placed on this goat, and this goat is driven out into the wilderness. Because he's taken our sin as far as our uh, as far as east is from west, that's typology, ladies and gentlemen. Well, one of the foremost pieces of typology in the whole Old Testament is a guy by the name of David. <laughs> Christ is the son of David and all that business, but David is a type of Christ. Everybody know that. Everybody realize that he's a type of Christ. And so when you read the story of David, 
there's, it's layered. There is wonderful stories about David going out and slaying Goliath. Yes, yes, yes. And there's stories about this and that and the other. And they're wonderful stories. And they're beneficial stories just on the surface. But if you'll keep looking, and you'll keep looking, and you'll keep looking, i got to tell you one other, um, you'll find more. If you know that he's a type of Christ, then, then, then read him, read his story, as if you're trying to discover something about who Christ is and what he's done. I, all right. Let me tell you this real quick. And this is kind of a digression. Heard this guy tell this story the other day. And, and um, uh, he went to a, a seminar. A seminar on, um, I don't know what it was, discipleship. I think it was a discipleship seminar. And uh, he was in a group of pastors. And, and it was being led by a woman. And the woman said, um, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a verse. And I want you to study that verse for 30 minutes. And I want you to write down every observation that you can come up with. I want you to come up with 25 observations in 30 minutes. And here's the verse. The verse is, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So they all went off in their little corners and they had 30 minutes. So this fellow was telling the story. He says, um, you know, about minute five, I figured, I don't know what else is in here. I mean, I'm out. And he's writing out everything he can write. And at minute five, he's done. He's cooked. And so he kept looking and, okay, and now and And then, you know, it, it, the more he looked at it, the more he looked at it, the more he, the longer his list became. 30 minutes was up. The, the, the instructor says, all right, how many of you, um, how many of you, um, found something in this text that you consider to be life changing? Something that, that is going to alter the way you serve Jesus Christ. And every hand went up. And this was her next question. And she took all of them. She said, all right, what was yours? And she wrote them all down. And, 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 she, and then she turned back to me and she said, now tell me, how many of you got that piece of life-changing information in the first five minutes? Nobody raised their hand. In the first ten minutes? Nobody raised their hand. In the first 15 minutes, nobody raised their hand. In the first 20 minutes, two hands went up. The first 25 minutes, the bulk of the room went up. In 30 minutes, all of them were up. Do you see the point, guys? When you're reading stories about David, and you come away and say, well, he was awfully brave, slaying that down. Let's move on to the next passage. You might want to look a bit, a little bit deeper. You might want to pause because David is a type of Christ. Now, if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand a thing I'm about to say in the last 10 minutes of our time together. You're not going to understand a thing I'd say. But I want you to look at this event in the life of Christ, uh, excuse me, in the life of David, who is a type of Christ. Now, guys, you're going to have to know a little bit of Old Testament history. You know, Saul was king, but he wasn't king for long. And David was the anointed one, and, and he's, you know, Saul is getting, you know, uh, less and less strong, and David is getting stronger and stronger, and, and he, and he has this little army of about 400 renegades, you remember? And then Saul goes out and, and has a war with the Philistines, and Saul's killed, and Ish, uh, uh, Jonathan's killed, and, and, uh, and it's, the, the nation is now in the hands of the king of Israel, whose name is what? Name is Ishbosheth. 
Israel's in the name of Ish. It was right on the tip of your tongue, wasn't it? Yeah. His name is Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth is now in charge. And, and it, but, but here's, it's right in that period that this takes place. Look at it in verse 1, 11 1. We're not going to read all this, but. <clears throat> then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and David made a covenant with them. So, now some people are beginning to drift out of Israel and come to David. But, but, but look with me, guys. Um, look at verse 2. Um, and the Lord your God said to you, verse 3, um, according to the word of the Lord to Samuel, verse 8. Um, and he built a city in the... Uh, oh, and nine. And David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Here's my point. God has begun to do something. God is behind this... this he's engineered this movement. And so it starts with this group of people coming and saying, Okay, David, you're bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. We are, we are in a union with you. And then the, then the story begins to look at verse 10 and following. It begins to tell you of David's mighty men. Of all these men that came to him in the, 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 the group of three that was the, I mean, they were bad dudes. And then the group of 30, and they were really bad dudes too, but they never made it up to the top three. And, and then it lists all these, these mighty men of, of, that David had. Uh, look at verse 22. And, ben- oh, oh uh, look at, ver- well, where's the first one? Um, oh, it's verse 12. And next, no, it's not. It's in verse um, 11. This is the account of David's mighty men. Jashobeam. Who's ever heard of Jashobeam? Well, the baddest dude in Israel was Jashobeam. He was in David's top three, and he was the best. And so you get the next three guys who were in that group, and then the 30 guys, and, 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 and you can see what's beginning to happen. This movement is beginning, is beginning to head towards David, and, and all these leaders and strong guys are showing up. And then you come to chapter 12. Um, now, these are the men who came to David at Ziklag, while he could not uh, move about freely. Because, But notice, guys, um, um, look, look at verse 18. Then the Spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the 30, and he says, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of David, uh, just, uh, Jesse, Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps. And then verse 22. For from day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. What's happening? God is beginning to take on people that was that used to be enemies of David, and now they're headed towards David. It might have started as a trickle. But it became, it gets bigger and bigger. Um, and in verse 23, they begin to number the people who start coming. Look at, um, um, verse 24. The men from Judah, 6,800. Of the Simeon, 7,100. Of the Levites, 4,600. Um, of the house of Aaron, 3,700. Zadok, uh, or Benjamin, 29, 3,000. Ephraimites, 20,800. Mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's houses of the tribe of, half tribe of Manasseh, 18,000. Look on down, uh, to verse 37. Of the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh from beyond the Jordan, 120,000 men armed with the weapons for war. What's going on? God has begun to take an enemy and turn them into people 
who were allies and joined to and in union with and committed to David, who is who? A type of Christ. And then, this is the crowning touch, at least for me. And all these men were arrayed in the battle order from Hebron with full, that's verse 38, an intent to make David king. All these people have drifted over to David and they are determined to see to it that David is king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparations. And this is neat, verse 40. And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food and donkeys and camels and mules and oxen and abundant provisions of flowers, cake, wine, oil, oxen and sheep. Food's coming from everywhere. Because David doesn't have 400 anymore. David's got 250,000. Why? Because I said at the very beginning, God had begun to move. God had begun to keep his word that he had spoken through Samuel. And so what God did is is start this movement that began to pick up steam such that at the end, there's 120,000 people coming from two and a half tribes. And they all wanted to come to David. They all wanted to be joined to David. And then, for me, the absolute coup de grace is the last few words of verse 12. And there was joy in Israel. Israel hadn't had joy for years. Israel was was a mess under Saul. So what does God do? He works this miracle of His and He begins to take people who were former enemies and He begins to draw them to the Old Testament Christ, David, And they come, they come, and they come, and they come, and He makes provisions for them. And as a result of finding the real and the right King, there's joy in Israel. Because they used to belong to the wrong King. Here's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. What you see take place in 1 Chronicles 11 and 12 is what Paul is predicting will take place in Romans chapter 11. What you see God doing here is what he's going to do later when he brings a whole nation. That's what he did here. When he brings a whole nation out from who they used to love and serve and turn their hearts and head them over to Jesus. He's already done it once, ladies and gentlemen. Is it, is it hard to believe that Israel is going to come to Christ in huge numbers and be woven into the church? Darn toot, it's hard to believe. <laughs> but we're not talking about something that happens on a human level. We're talking about a miracle that work, that God works And he worked it in every heart in this room. If you're a believer tonight, he worked it in your heart. He exchanged your heart of stone and gave you a new one 
And that's why you have thrown yourself at Jesus Christ. All Paul is saying is that one day it's going to be done on a national level. And then there will be joy in Israel. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us of that you're not done, that you're not finished, that there are still redemptive events off in the future. Um, hard to believe, yes. Hard to wrap our minds around, yes. Um, but no less miraculous than the than the miraculous work of saving any person in this room. The same miracle that took place in us individually will take place nationally. And that will make our spiritual health today look so ill that we will think we have experienced life from the dead. Until then, O oh God, might you find Grace Evan a faithful representative of the Lord of glory, in whose name we pray.